Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Today we're going to be taking a look at atheist YouTuber and now debater Eric Murphy, and we're going to take a look at what he has to say about the deaths of the apostles, the existence of the soul, uh, original sin, and a host of other issues. Stick with us. Uh, your example about uh, terrorists blowing up buildings, blowing themselves up, is another huge issue. Were they right? Would that make Islam true? And therefore, one's thinking of this as somehow. Let's break it down, right? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all unique, separate beings. And yet, they're all the same. Traumatic brain injuries drastically impact the personality of people. Or if I had brain damage or Alzheimer's, that I could lose my memory. So if you affect the brain, you can affect my mental states. But does it follow that, therefore, I am my brain and body? You know, I'm strengthened in my Christianity by hearing stuff like this. So it's been a while since I've done just a straight up and down response video to an individual atheist. And uh, the reason I thought it was worth doing here is because, number one, uh, this was a debate that was had sometime back a few months ago or something. And I, I, I watched it, but I, I'm not sure I ever heard too much said about it. Um, so I think it's worth going through this first debate from Eric Murphy. Eric Murphy, I think, is typically on the show Talk Heathen. And it could be that uh, Matt Dillhunty is kind of uh, helping him. It's certainly the case that Dillhunty is helping him get started in debating. Uh, this was his first debate, but I think he's done at least one other event since this one as well. So what we're going to do here is we're going to take a look at um, what he said in his opening statements, what, uh, what his responses were, some of what David Wood said, and uh, see what we can see see what sense we can make out of his responses. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I think we're going to have a lot to say, and there's some really interesting topics that get covered here. So let's go ahead and get started right away. Okay. So the topic of tonight's debate is: Is it rational to accept Christian theism? Is it rational to accept Christian theism? So let's break it down just a little bit. Um, we could have done a debate about atheism, about atheist positions. Um, we're not doing that tonight. Um, we, well, we're specifically talking about the Christian claim. So um, how do we do that? How do we evaluate? How do we determine whether or not something is rational? Well, there are two different definitions of rational that come to mind. Uh, the first is whether or not it's internally consistent, but I, I don't think that's really very useful in this context, um, especially because Harry Potter is internally consistent and we're not really having Harry Potter debates. This is something far more important. So um, let's look at what else something is when it's rational. When a thing is rational, we determine it's rational because we've determined that it has sufficient evidence to be accepted. And so how do we determine what is sufficient evidence? It, people can determine, you know, uh, uh, whether or not the evidence is sufficient is going to be up to you tonight. Um, give me a break, give me just a second. It's going to be up to you tonight. And I want to help you along that path because I'm going to be evaluating it with you. 
Okay, let's stop right here and make some initial comments. Obviously, uh, first of all, I think he's been open about the fact that this was his first debate. Um, you know, there's a little bit of pressure when you have a clock like that. You can you can get you know stuck for a minute like that. So I, I don't hold that against him. Okay, a um, couple of things we want to say about this. First of all, um, something is reasonable to be believed if it is. Uh, coherent or doesn't have any internal contradictions or something. I think he said that was a possible explanation, but he ditched that one. And I agree. I think that if something is rational, it will be coherent. But the fact that something's coherent doesn't mean that there's no internal. I always use Lord of the Rings. Harry Potter, there are some, there are some plot holes there, I think. For instance, there's a Business Insider article that points out some of these plot holes as it relates to the business side of things and points out that the best example is how a unicorn, a unicorn hair costs 10 galleons while a wand from Ollivander, some of which contain unicorns, corn hair and other expensive cores like dragon heart string and phoenix feathers will only cost you seven galleons. So there you go. We've got some plot holes and some problems in the Harry Potter universe that my daughter would be upset that I pointed out to you. Nevertheless, uh, I am with him. Uh, just because something's coherent doesn't make it true. So what what else can we can we go with? Well, um, he says something that the, the evidence you know, there's sufficient evidence for or something like that. Here's the problem: there are a lot of different definitions depending on which academic uh, resource you go to for a definition of what it means for something to be rational. But as I've argued in the past, uh, rationality it has to do with your reason. It is a process. Rationality is a process by which you assess things and decide there is a choice involved. You decide what thing you're going to affirm. And so um, the idea that you could be rational at all if determinism is true, as atheism, I've argued elsewhere, requires for determinism with the lack of free will, um, then, then whatever you want to say about Christianity, you simply can't do, you can't be rational. You can't rationally affirm anything if atheism is true. If Christianity is true. You actually can rationally affirm things because, uh, as we'll get to in a few moments, perhaps you have the existence of the soul and free will is on the table for reasons that maybe we'll get into, but I've argued sufficiently elsewhere. So right from the top, this uh, debate is going to be very difficult for Eric Murphy because, um, and if I was there, I would have brought this up, because on determinism, you simply can't have rational affirmations. You can affirm things and you might even be right, but you can't rationally affirm them because rationality is is the process by which you assess things and decide you choose uh, what you should affirm. And if there's no free will, then there simply was no real process of freely assessing and deciding. It was all just uh, deterministic and, and mechanistic. So, um, you know, it, it's like I've said a lot of times here, uh, Tim Stratton says that what if you found out that suddenly there was a mad scientist who was controlling your every thought, your every uh, belief, and including the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth? Would you have any way, uh, any justification for rationally affirming those things? No, you could affirm whatever you're going to affirm, but you couldn't rationally affirm it because you don't know know the intentions uh, of this mad scientist. With determinism, it's actually worse because there's not even a thinking mad scientist out there. It's just that it's just the blind forces of nature determining you to do whatever you do. So right off the bat, we've got a real serious problem here with the idea of rationality. But let's grant him that. Let's just go ahead and say we're going to take a look at the evidence. We're going to see where the evidence goes. And we're going to find out whether or not there's good evidence for Christianity or good enough at least that it's reasonable and you can be rational in affirming it. Let's continue. And we can look together at whether or not it's going to meet that burden of evidence. So, Let's do it, Eric. Um, David, there are a couple of things that when I looked at this, I really, really wanted to figure out, you know, how am I going to determine whether or not the Christian theist position is rational? Uh, there are a bunch of different types of Christianity, and there are a bunch of different types of... 
By the way, this is a bit odd. I don't know why it's set up this way. If the question is, is Christianity rational? And David Wood is taking the affirmative position and saying, yes, it is. And then Eric Murphy is taking the position that, no, it's not. Or as is common today with atheists, I don't know whether it is or whatever he's going to say. Then you would think that the affirmative would go first. I mean, that's typically how these things are done because Eric doesn't know what David's going to say to respond to it, which I think is kind of why he's meandering here a bit and does throughout the debate. But let's just keep trucking. Claims that they make. Um, so I wanted to break it down to some core components. Um, and, well, I think that if we can get over those hurdles, we can be a whole lot closer to determining whether or not it's rational. I want to start with the concept of original sin. That's something that's found throughout the different Christian denominations. It goes back to Adam and Eve and, and partaking of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That's something that you have to take as literal to get original sin, right? To, to have the introduction of sin into the world, that thing which Christ died for, according to the book. If it's just an allegory, why would Jesus die for it? Why would it matter to you? Why would we be standing here if it wasn't there? But we know that there was never a time, if you study evolution, you would know that there was never a time when there was just one man and one woman. Heck, if the population ever got that small, the lack of genetic diversity would doom the species altogether. It never got that low. So when was it? Where was it? Was there a... Okay, I, I want to say a couple of things about this. In the last video that I made, I was talking a little bit about how skeptics get to decide what they're going to be skeptical about, even if they don't speak that way. And he's going to say a few things about that later. I don't know if we're going to get to those comments, but he says, I, I do. I apply my skepticism broadly to, to everything in my life, and, and I hold everything tentatively and all those sorts of things. All right, well, you're... Okay, if he just said, if you'll study evolution, you'll see that this never was the case. It never happened like this. We now know this and that. Okay, if you'd study Christianity, you'd find out that it was. Now, what you're thinking is, yeah, but why should I believe Christianity? Okay, why should you believe other sources? You didn't personally experience this data. You didn't do the, the work in the lab, I don't think, unless Eric Murphy has, you know, is, is a biologist and I don't know it. Uh, you're, not, you're not the one in there doing all that sort of thing. You're listening to what other people have told you, and you're not applying your skepticism there, at least not very strongly, but you are with the Christian stuff. You see how you get to choose what you're going to be skeptical about? Now, you might say, well, yeah, but you've got all these scientists and you've got all right. And you've got all these uh, theologians and philosophers over here. You see how you get to decide what you're going to be skeptical about based on this, based on your presuppositions, as we saw in the last episode, uh, you've bought into these societal suggestions without really applying your skepticism there. And, and that's, a, that's a major problem. Let's talk a little bit about original sin and the existence of the historical Adam and Eve. I am what you call a, a creationist, but I'm not a young earth creationist. Uh, really, I'm an I don't know creationist. I don't know how old the earth is. And I don't think the Bible ever intends to tell us how old the earth is. But let's just, I'm kind of, I lean old earth uh, uh, pretty strongly. Okay, so but I'm not an evolutionist. Um, I lack a belief in evolution. I'm skeptical, highly skeptical of evolution. Although if evolution turned out to be true, it wouldn't hurt my faith not one bit. Because if evolution turned out to be true, it wouldn't mean that Jesus didn't die on the cross for my sins and rise again. It doesn't mean God doesn't exist. You see what I mean? I would just understand, I would just realize that maybe I got some things wrong and maybe it would affect some biblical interpretation that I have. Uh, but I don't know about that. I don't even know if it would require that. So you see, uh, the, where I'm at right now, if I personally believe that there was a literal Adam and Eve, and that these were literally the first two human beings. 
Um, second, secondly, though, if I was a theistic evolutionist, which I'm not, I could still say something like Adam and Eve were the first two humans into which God put his image or put his soul, or put a soul, put souls or something like that. Um, you could you could still do that. Adam could still be the federal head for humanity, even if that was the case. Now, I don't buy into that theistic evolution that stands behind that. I'm just saying it's there's 2,000 years of work on all these doctrines. So uh, it's it's always a little bit, it makes me chuckle a little bit when an atheist t- takes the stage and thinks that he can just dismiss it without dealing with any of that stuff. Okay. Um, there's a lot of ink that has been spilt, an ocean of ink that has been spilt on each of these issues that you think are so damning uh, to the position. So really, that that's not that big of a deal. Uh, second thing, what do we mean by original sin? Well, in, in the history of the church, there's been a lot of debate about this. Uh, is do, do we have a, a sin nature and a guilt nature? Do we have... Um, uh, neither a sin nature or a guilt nature, or do we have some combination? Do we have um, a sin nature but not a guilt nature? That you know, th- this is actually where I am on this. I think that um, the Bible does teach repeatedly uh, that God does not hold the sins of the does not hold the Son accountable for the sins of the Father. Now, whenever you see passages talking about um, I'll visit the sins of the Father to the third and fourth generations and things like that. Um, I think that contextually what's going on there is you're going to experience the ramifications of the sins of your father. And that's certain. That's just a fact about life that is undeniable. Um, children have fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, people experience all kinds of uh, defects or problems uh, physically because of what their parents did. P- psychological issues because of what their parents did. So this can happen. It happened with the children of Israel. Uh, they went into captivity and there were children born in captivity right uh for things that their parents did so you see this uh isn't that difficult i do believe that god um that god holds us accountable for the sins that we commit so but i do believe we have a sin nature we have a nature and an environment inclined towards sin because of what our forebears have done so we have a nature and an environment inclined towards sin uh, but that doesn't mean that we have a guilt nature. So yeah, I do think we're born with a sin nature, but not a guilt nature. And I think that that works fine with my experience of the world. It also makes sense of scripture. It also seems to be what scripture actually means as far as I'm concerned. Do Christians disagree on that? Sure they do. The point is that Eric Murphy here, um, and and granted, he's asking for David Wood to go into this. I get it. But it's as though he's completely unaware of the variety of views available on this issue. There's just a lot about this. Sin nature is not this slam dunk that he seems to think that it is. And, you know, if that's the re- if that were the reason that someone left Christianity, oh my goodness, there's absolutely no reason that should be the Achilles heel. I think he says in a little while that he, when he left Christianity, it was a death by a thousand cuts. You know, it wasn't one big thing. If this is one of your cuts, this doesn't even need to be a cut. This is... Uh, completely answerable, completely defensible. I just don't see what the problem is here. Let's keep moving. There a time that uh, God said, okay, go. How do we make that determination? Were things not immoral if, uh, you know, was, 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 was murder okay before then? What? Um, it's really fuzzy. And I think that we have a right to find out whether or not that is a rational claim, right? that's built into Christianity. So let's, let's look for that answer. Inherited- now, now, hold up. Understand what he's using as a basis for what's rational is what we have sufficient evidence to believe. 
Um, I just the other day was in a, a live stream and someone, I gave an explanation of how Christians view a particular thing. And he said, you realize that that wouldn't matter. It wouldn't, that you wouldn't believe that at all if you weren't a Christian. Well, right. Of course, I'm not offering this as an evidence for Christianity being true. I'm not offering original sin, the, the doctrine of original sin as some sort of an evidence for the truth of Christianity. You're bringing what you think is a problem for Christianity, what you see as some kind of a contradiction or something that's not plausible within Christianity. Um, and I'm giving you a defense. At the very least, I'm giving you what's known as a philosophical defeater. I'm giving you an explanation that if the explanation I'm giving you is true, then your criticism doesn't mean that Christianity's in trouble or isn't true or something like that. So uh, this just isn't isn't that difficult. So let me go into defeaters just real quick. This could be a long episode, but uh, but I, I want to go into this real quick. Um, so let's say that three of us are sitting in a room, me, Eric Murphy, and uh, Jonathan Pritchett. And uh, Eric leaves and he goes away. And let's say that the, the windows, there's no windows in this room that we're in, so we don't know what's going on outside. An hour later, Eric comes back and he's soaking wet in his clothes. Now, let's say that uh, we're trying to figure out without him telling us why he's soaking wet. And Jonathan Pritchett says, I know exactly why he's soaking wet. He got into a shower with his clothes on. Okay, is that necessarily true? I mean, it might be true. It'd be strange, but uh, let's just let's just let's just uh, say that's the claim. He says that has to be the explanation. Okay, um, I can think of other options. Uh, it may be that it was raining outside and Eric got wet in his clothes. It could be that Eric fell into a pond. It could be that someone did a really late. ALS ice bucket challenge on Eric without Eric uh, suspecting it. You know, there are other options. Now, do I know for sure that one of those other options is true? No, but so long as any one of these other options are even possibly true, even remotely possibly true, like with the ALS ice bucket challenge uh, several years after the fact, right? As long as any of those are even possibly true, then it means the claim that Jonathan makes that the only explanation for how it is that Eric came in with his clothes on soaking wet uh, is that he got into a shower with his clothes on. It means that that's... You can't claim that there's that that's definitely the answer because there are other possible answers, right? That these other possible answers that we may not even know which one is exactly right, those are called philosophical defeaters. They're defeaters to the claim that this is the way it has to be. And what Eric has done here is he has thrown out what he sees as a contradiction or a serious problem for Christianity, which is the doctrine of original sin based on evolution and what we know happened there, okay? And I'm giving you philosophical defeaters. I don't buy theistic evolution, but if theistic evolution is true, as Eric thinks that it is, theistic evolutionists have explanations for original sin. I'm giving you the debate that exists uh, among theologians about the nature of original sin and what was going on there. And I hold a particular view of that that's different from what some others hold in that regard. Uh, so long as I'm possibly right, your criticism dissolves. Uh, so I'm giving you these options that are on the table. Now, you you might say, well, yeah, but you can't prove one of those. Right. I'm not giving you, I'm not presenting, again, uh, original sin as an evidence for the truth of Christianity. You're challenging the truth of Christianity on the basis of original sin, and I'm providing you with a defeater to your criticism. Okay? There we go. Sin is another thing. Uh, so for the story... It's not just Adam and Eve who were cursed for breaking the rules. It's every one of their descendants. Well, it's uh, every one of their sin descendants experienced a nature and an environment inclined towards sin because Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, 
right? It's, I mean, but that doesn't mean that they experience, that they inherited the guilt of Adam and Eve. That's a whole debate. We have a sin nature, but not a guilt nature. So again, we just need to, you just need to hit the journal articles, hit some good systematic theology books, listen to some de- debates among theologians. I'm telling you atheist folks, even if you don't buy this, you're going to find it all fascinating. There's a great depth to this. Right. How does that make any sense? How's that fair? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, if somebody's just going to say, well, it's, that it's fair because God says it, well, then we really don't have a, any purpose standing up here and talking about it. But do... Yeah, we're not saying it's fair because God said it. We're saying you, there, there's a, 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 there is a great depth to this discussion that at least apparently at this point, and look, I don't blame you, Eric. You seem like a nice guy. You're asking David to give this to you, and I don't know if he ever did. I uh, should just say now, I watched this debate when it originally happened, but when I was going back to respond to this, I just clicked on uh, Eric's uh, opening statements and rebuttal, and then one section of David where he's talking about the deaths of the apostles, but I didn't listen to all of David's uh presentation. I remember a little bit about it from when I first saw it. But you seem like a nice guy, Eric, and you're asking David to give you uh, an answer to this. And I don't know whether he did or not, but I'm giving it to you now if you ever see this. There are a range of options among theologians, and any one of them might serve as a great philosophical defeater. But we're not saying God, it's fair because whether God says, just because God says so or something like that. Some people might say that, but that's not what you're going to get from me. To apply this in another way, that would be like saying, well, um, you know, this person owes me money. I give this person $5. And so from now until the end of time, all of their children are going to owe me money as well. It just, it doesn't work that way. So that's Agreed. the first. Original sin. Kind of. The next is, um, well, the Trinity. David, I didn't ask you. Are you a Trinitarian? Awesome. All right, then I can bring this one up. Otherwise, I'd cross it out, and we'd have a much shorter debate. Um, <laughs> uh, so, the Trinity. I, you know, let's break it down, right? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all unique, separate beings, and yet they're all the same. So, in order for, for us not to break the laws of logic, we would need to come up with an explanation. And I have not yet been able to find a way for us to rationalize it. Either, you know, I've, I've heard the, the explanation, well, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's like saying Eric the brother, Eric the coworker, Eric the best friend. Uh, those are all different descriptors of me. Uh, so maybe it's just that, but that means that Okay, that is a view that some people, some people like lay persons in the pews might might hold. I've heard people say that, um, but that's not that's not classical Christianity. But I'm one person. That is not what the Trinity is. The Trinity is three distinct, separate beings all wrapped up into one. How does that work? How does that not break the laws of logic? How do you not quickly fall into, well? If, if they are three distinct beings, then that would be polytheism, and this would not be a Christian debate. If they're all different characteristics of a single entity, then you are not a Trinitarian. False dichotomy. So, uh, first of all, again, this is, I'm not trying to be a jerk about this, but this is where you need to read up on tritheism and the debates that have gone on throughout the history of the church on the nature of the Trinity and what is the Trinity and what's exactly going on here. But classical Christianity puts it like this. Here you go. It's, it's, it's neither that these are 
um, separate, distinct, completely separate and distinct beings, nor is it that, uh, that it's like you're, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a brother, I'm a son, you know, that, that whole thing where you just have one. What it is, is the classical example of this is a triangle. A triangle has three distinct points, but it shares one essence, triangle, right? So uh, each point on the triangle is not the same as the other points. They're all separate, distinct points, but they share one being, uh, the triangle, right? In the same way, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are each different persons. Jesus was not praying to himself when he was praying when he, during his earthly ministry. So you have three distinct persons that share one essence, God. Now, if we said three persons who were one person, that would be a contradiction. If we said three gods that were one God, that would be a contradiction. But if we say three persons who exist as one God, that may be mysterious. We may not have all the information about it that we would like to have, but there's simply not a contradiction there. It would be simply incorrect to say that that's contradictory. So there you go. Let's keep trucking. This is something that we should be able to answer. If you're accepting Christian theism, you're accepting that the whole bundle. And so it's not unreasonable to determine, to ask why that is, right? You should be able to know. I should be able to know. We should be able to find out together. So that's my next question, the Trinity. Finally, I want to talk about the existence of the soul. I mean, let's, let's be clear, without a soul, there's no theism. I'm, what, the, the, the entire story is about the, the damnation of humans and, and you know, saving them from hell, saving them to heaven, right? The, the, the sacrifice and all of that talks about the soul. Okay, wait a minute. Did you hear him go to any passages about the soul? I didn't hear anything like that. Um, the reason I point this out is because even though I affirm the soul, and uh, I'm going to let a friend help me out here in just a second about the soul, uh, the fact of the matter is, there there is a growing number there there is a growing number of Christians out there that are what are called Christian physicalists. Um, and Christian physicalism, you got guys like Joel B. Green at Fuller. Uh, I read the book because a friend, Nick Quint, who we had on a few weeks ago, um, he uh, recommended this book. Uh, Glenn Peoples, uh, uh, Chris Day, these are all Christian physicalists. These are Christians who are conservative evangelicals, as far as I can tell, that don't affirm the existence of the soul. Now, if that sounds odd to you, guess what? It sounds odd to me too. But what they would say to what he just said, he just said, hey, you have to have the soul for Christianity because people are going to go to heaven and hell and all this sort of thing. Right. And you know what the physicalists are going to say? They're going to be resurrected. Their physical body is going to be resurrected because all Christians believe that we're going to be resurrected one day and then judged. But here's the thing about it. Um, you, the point is that if I was a Christian physicalist, I would have to, I would have to, challenge him on this and say, why are you saying that the soul is required for Christianity to be true? Now, since I'm not a Christian physicalist, um, if I found if I found out that the soul did not exist somehow, I don't know how I would figure that out, but if I found out that the soul did not exist, I wouldn't stop being a Christian. I'd just have to be a Christian physicalist. You see, uh, a lot of what he's packing in as requirements for the truth of Christianity are not even on the lists of things. Well, I won't say a lot of them, but at least some of them are not even on the lists of what some people consider to be the foundational fundamentals of the Christian faith. But granted, um, I do believe in a version of original sin. I've talked about that. I believe in the Trinity. I've talked about how that works. With the soul, I do believe in the soul. I'm just saying if, if I found out it wasn't there, I'd still be a Christian. But uh, what, what's, what's the problem with the soul? Let's see what he tells us. 
I think we should be able to determine whether or not a soul is likely before we can determine whether or not accepting Christian theism is rational. So what is the soul? Well, let's look at its characteristics, right? You know what? No. Now, wait a minute. First of all, you've got this backwards a little bit. We need to figure out whether the soul is possible before we can figure out whether Christian theism is rational. No, if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true, period. By talking about what you believe about the soul, you're going to find out what kind of Christian you are, what your uh, secondary doctrinal positions are. Okay, but let's, let's hear what he says. Well, let's start somewhere else. You see, I was talking to Matt, and um, we, we started trying to do math with souls. It kind of got difficult because uh, I've, I've heard the position that uh, the soul enters the body at the moment of conception. Um, I'll throw that out if that's, not th if that's not what you believe. Does the soul enter the body at the moment of conception? Uh, never put my foot down in a certain area, but sounds good. Cool. All right. So if the soul enters the body at the moment of conception, well... We now notice David Woods over here. He's like, um... Sure, sounds fine. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> That's right. Now, I'll tell you why I say that, why I think that's funny, is because there are certain things that Christians believe, that there's nothing contradictory about it, that uh, we, we affirm as true, but that doesn't mean we have that that's a particular area of, area of interest for us, nor does it mean that it poses any kind of problem. We don't have to have explanations for like uh, how everything works. Uh, evolution doesn't have answers for how everything works, right? But you still believe in evolution. You just say, well, we don't know exactly about this. Maybe one day we'll figure it out. Uh, this would be a problem for Christianity if we were offering you the soul as our principal evidence for the truth of Christianity. And some people do include it, but, but, but David's not. I don't. We'll hear from someone in a minute who does, but let's keep trucking. We have been able to determine through, you know, just watching how gestation, you know, how, how all of this happens. And uh, there are some times when the embryo splits and you get twins. So does an extra soul come in or do they have to share the same one? Is it split? Is there half a soul? Is there one that doesn't have a soul? Can you have a body without a soul? Um, and then, okay, well, if you, you know, you've got the split, but then sometimes the other, you know, one of the twins will absorb the other in utero. So then what happens? Do they both, do you have two souls sharing one body? Or uh, maybe, maybe one, uh, one soul just, you know, tough luck, you know, back to the, back to the line, maybe try again, I, I don't know. Did somebody get screwed out of the chance of a life because an embryo split, right? And let's move on to what happens in life. We've been able to determine that Traumatic brain injuries drastically impact the personality of people. You see it. You see people who sustain damage to different parts of their brains and their tastes change. Their personalities entirely change, right? If you take a look at different degenerative illnesses as people grow older, the, the, the uh, myelin breakdown uh, around those synapses in your brain uh, it starts to break down and it starts to drastically impact the personality who this person is. So what happened to the soul? Is the soul not that thing that gives you your personality? Because you can cut that out of your brain. Um, did the soul change? Is it trapped somehow? If it's trapped, then what's operating the body? And even if you look at a perfectly healthy body, 
how would a soul interact? If, you, if you're expecting a soul, if you're expecting a soul to be able to control the body, how does the ghost interact with the machine? There's no need for it. But in order for us to rationally accept Christian theism, you should be able to determine whether or not there's a soul. Because then you have more work to do from there. But we can start there tonight. We have these three things that I brought up, right? We have original sin, we have the Trinity, we have the existence of the soul. Okay, let's go real quick to a friend of mine, uh, Eric Hernandez. Some of you know Eric. Uh, when I first met Eric, I was actually giving a lecture at an apologetics conference, and Matt Dillahunty walked into the room and sat down at the back of the house. I didn't know Matt at that time. This was long before we ever debated. And Eric came in and walked with him. I thought Eric was an atheist. So, um, um, but it's, a, it's kind of a funny introduction. But Eric's been a friend for a while now. Here's what Eric has to say. His primary thing he loves talking about is the soul. So my freshman year of college, uh, I took a class from an atheist professor who I was actually warned to not take his class because I'd lose my faith. Uh, but setting that aside for now, I remember one day in class, we're sitting waiting for him. He walks in and he sits down and he looks at us and he says, now religion wants us to believe that there's an immaterial soul to everyone that exists. And because of this, we can have hope in an afterlife and, and look forward to that and being in heaven. But then he pulled from his pocket a small pill which was an antidepressant pill, and he held it up in the light and he said, however, if the soul is immaterial, then how is it that this material, tiny little pill can change the entire mood of my soul? Because, of course, as religion would have us believe, your, uh, your sensations, your thoughts and beliefs are in your soul, but how can a pill that's physical affect my immaterial? He said, well, I'll tell you why, because there is no soul. We're just a brain and body, physics and chemistry, all the way down, and there is no hope in an afterlife, there is no soul. At the time, I had never heard anyone even question the soul's existence. And quite frankly, it's thankfully to him that God used him, ironically, as an atheist, to push me in that direction. But let's, let's analyze this for a second. First, we know that the mind is not the same thing as a brain. That is to say, consciousness is not physical. How do we know this? Well, if your mind is physical, if it's a physical thing, then it has to be identical to something physical, the same thing as something like the brain. However, we know that there are things true of the mind that are not true of the brain. Like what? Well, for example, uh, my thought that uh, today is Friday is true or false. However, no part or region of my brain is true or false. In fact, my brain can weigh three pounds, but my thought of where I'm at or what time it is doesn't weigh three pounds. As J.P. Moreland says, although philosophers may have heavy thoughts, we don't need to wear neck braces. Uh, my brain can be seven inches long, but the taste of a banana or the smell of a rose, which is a mental state, is not seven inches long. So it follows that the mind and brain are not the same thing because the mind is not physical. But consider the objection that perhaps this pill can change my mood or my states of my mind, which are in my soul, or if I had brain damage or Alzheimer's, that I could lose my memory. So if you affect the brain, you can affect my mental states, but does it follow that therefore I am my brain and body? Consider the following analogy. Suppose I was the greatest guitar player in the world, and I wanted to play a song that included the note C, but my guitar string pops. Due to this, I cannot play the song, at least not the way it should be played, because now my instrument through which I convey my talent has been affected. But does it follow from this that therefore I am the guitar? Well, of course not. Just because there's an interdependent relationship doesn't follow that the two are the same thing. Or perhaps consider that I'm the worst guitar player in the world, but you give me the greatest, best guitar that's ever been made. Would that give me the talent? No, so the, the point here is that if the note C is not in the guitar, or I'm not in the guitar, although I use the guitar as an instrument, 
The only thing that follows is that there's an interdependency. So sure, I have no denial that if you affect parts of my brain, you can affect parts and states of my mind, which is in my soul, but it does not follow that they are the same thing. In fact, it's a two-way street, I submit to you. When we look at neuroscience and neuroplasticity and specifically, we find that changing the way you think can change the chemistry of your brain. Thus, you have men like Jeffrey Schwartz, one of the world's leading neuroscientists, showing results of people with OCD and depression, teaching them how to challenge their thoughts because of the chemical imbalance of their brain. By thinking differently, they can change the way their brain has been wired neurologically. Is there a soul? Absolutely. Does the interdependence or the effect of the brain on the soul have anything to do with whether or not the soul exists? Absolutely not. All right, so there we go. So there's Eric talking about the soul, and he had a debate with Matt Dillahunty, as a matter of fact, on precisely this question, the soul. So I encourage you to go check that out. Uh, the thing I like to use with this that kind of makes the same point as his guitar analogy is, um, you know, if you have someone with brain damage, like Eric Murphy was talking about, I think, um, our physical body can be imagined to be somewhat like a radio player, like an AM FM radio player. And the soul is like the signal that's coming through from the station to the radio. Um, if you damage part of the radio, if you damage part of the speaker or something like that, then you're not going to get the clear signal. The, the machinery isn't going to function properly, but it doesn't mean that you damaged the uh the signal that's coming through. It just means you damaged the manifestation of it in the machinery. And that's how we understand things that happen with people when they have brain injuries or things like that. Now, Eric asked a question, well, what about, uh, what about the soul when it comes to what's going on in utero and all of that? I don't know. Is that, is that a big deal that we don't know? There's no contradiction there. Maybe the way he described it is exactly how it happens. I don't know. Uh, but that's, I think why David Wood was kind of like, uh, Sure, sounds good. Because it doesn't matter to the truth of the rationality of Christianity that we have detailed answers to everything. Why don't I just say about uh, evolution? Uh, well, you know, abiogenesis. How did that happen? Uh, how did we get this RNA or DNA? How, how did this first life come to be? How did we get these uh, protein molecules or whatever's going on there? How did, how did it happen? Did, did it happen? You don't think that completely affects it. Uh, now, if you're going to say that this uh, explanation actually, uh, that, that, that evolution actually holds, you need to be able to tell me something about how it got started. But you don't, my point is, you don't seem bothered by that. You don't seem bothered by the fact that there's still areas where we don't have all the answers we'd like to have, right? I don't know that we have all the answers we would like to have about the nature of the soul. So what? You need to show me a contradiction. You need to show me an incoherency. You need to show me something wrong with it if you're going to use that to say that Christianity is irrational. So let's go back to Eric and let's keep trucking. Is he done now? I think he's done. And to the best of my ability, I have not been able to see a satisfactory response to any of those. And so you could not justify to me that it's rational to accept it because there is not sufficient evidence to support the claims that are built into it, right? When you have what is original sin, what is it? Don't know. It's magic. God will sort okay. it out. He, he's, just, he's just going back over it all again, probably to eat up the clock because he got done too early. But here's the thing. A good systematic theology course would handle all of this for you. <laughs> Every bit of it. Um, these just th This is the case that Christianity is irrational. I'm I'm flabbergasted by that. All right, let's let's go over here now and let's continue. This is his rebuttal now. So David Wood got up and basically, if I recall, David Wood gave his um, his testimony, which I actually go through some a few moments in his testimony in a previous video. But he goes he he goes through his testimony and then he kind of 
indirectly as part of that testimony references uh, intel, uh, you know, the design, the incredible fine tuning for life that we see. And he talks a little bit about the um, uh, deaths of the apostles that they were willing to die martyrs deaths. And this is an evidence that they really believed that they had seen the risen Christ because they were willing to die for that claim. Uh, I think that that's all you really need to know to set this up. But let's let's hear what Eric has to say now. Well, David's right. We are a tiny planet hurtling through space. Do we have some grand design, some grand plan? It's taken me a long time to find that, you know what, you don't have to. You get to apply your own purpose. And I have. And every day that I work to achieve it, it's something beautiful. It's something amazing. Because I do all of the murdering that I want to do, and it's exactly zero. And I can say that that is true for the vast majority of people in this room. Okay, now he kind of brushed over this, but this is the kind of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre sort of idea that you can make up your own purpose, your own meaning for this. I, I've talked about this before, that, that if, you really want, if you really want to get to purpose, uh, you, that purpose has to be ascribed and for reasons that I've, I've talked about before. So a shovel doesn't decide it wants to be a shovel. A shovel is a shovel by virtue of what its creator made it to be. And in the same way, we are what our creator wants us to be. But there's a beautiful explanation for this. Uh, there's a Christian apologist who's now Catholic. Before he was Catholic, I actually had him teach at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. His name is Donald J. Johnson. He has a book called How to Talk to a Skeptic. We still use that as a course text here. And um, I have an endorsement inside that book. He asked me to write an endorsement for it. He has had a longstanding radio show that he just started up again called The Don Johnson Show. And I encourage you to go check it out. Um, even, even though he's a Catholic scholar and I disagree with a lot of Catholicism, um, what he has to say in terms of apologetics is really good. But he made this really great point, and, and this is amazing. Uh, in my family, we really like the Toy Story movies, and the most recent Toy Story movie that came out involves a spork, and I think the spork's name is Sporky or Forky or something like that. And so this is, this is the point that Don Johnson makes, and I, I think it's incredible. I, I didn't notice it. But he said, all right, so when I first saw this, I thought, okay, here we go. This is going to be some kind of a message about some sort of a trans thing, and you can be whatever you want and all that sort of thing. But no, it's completely the opposite. And this is a trend that goes through the Toy Story movies from start to finish. Uh, in the first Toy Story movie, do you recall what the point of the movie was? Is Buzz Lightyear, the Space Ranger, has shown up, and the whole movie, Woody has to be the voice of reason that convinces Buzz that he's not actually a space ranger, that he's not on some mission, that he can't fly, that these aren't lasers that shoot out of his arms. These are just light bulbs on him because he's a toy. And he has to convince him, you are you are a child's plaything, right? You remember that famous line? So he says, you're not really a space ranger. You're a toy. And the purpose is, throughout this whole movie, is if you don't accept what you actually are, what your true nature is, what your true essence is, what you were designed to be, if you don't get that right, it's actually going to be harmful and dangerous for you. And we saw that in the movie. You know, Buzz Lightyear's wanting to jump off of the tops of really tall things because he thinks he can fly. And what he's trying to tell him, you do that, you're going to hurt yourself because you can't actually fly. You're not really a space ranger. I know that's what you think you are. That's what you want to believe. That's what you want to be. But you are a toy. And what you need to recognize is, this is the message of this story, is that child over there, which is kind of like the, the, the God image in this picture, what you need to do is you need to do what he wants you to do. You need to ascribe to the, the missions that he puts you on, not the ones that you think you're really on. Um, and so you need to love your child and you need to take his name 
on you, right? Literally on the bottom of the foot. You need to take his name. You need to want to, to please him. And then you want to love your other toys as yourself is basically the message of this, right? You can't be whatever you want to be. You need to be what you were designed to be. You can't give yourself a purpose. You need to follow the purpose for which you were designed. All right. That was the first Toy Story movie. This is an incredibly Christian message all the way through. All right. Go to the last Toy Story movie. And this principle is actually carried through in the other films too. But in the last one, you have where where Buzz Lightyear had too high of a view of himself. Now you've actually got Sporky or Forky or whatever has too low a view of himself. He's actually been created by the child, a little girl, to, to be a toy where he was trash. And so he's wanting to, every time he sees a trash can, he's wanting to go and topple himself into the trash can, right? Uh, he has a really low view of himself, but the, the child has made him into something. She has made him sacred, set apart, uh, given him an ascribed value and, and given him a purpose to be a toy. And so the same thing that Woody had to do in the first movie with Buzz, he now has to do in the fourth movie with Sporky or Forky. And that is to convince this thing that not that it has this low value that it just needs to be chucked into the trash, but that it has been redeemed and made into something. And it needs to, again, please the, the child, the, the, the creator in this case, and love its fellow toys as itself and find family there. And when you do that, when you accept your proper design and your proper purpose, then that's when you find peace and that's when you find joy. And that is such a Christian message. And the fact that it shows up in this Disney Pixar film blows my mind that it didn't that they didn't weed this out, that this made it through. But it also kind of shows me there's something intrinsic that we kind of recognize that. That that is a meta-narrative that kind of is the way reality is. But of course, this idea, to get back to it, that you can just describe your own purpose presumes naturalism, presumes uh, that there is no God. And the idea that this purpose has some ultimate meaning uh, can't even be achieved on naturalism. So uh, this is just a minor point that kind of flew under the radar that I thought needed to be highlighted. And that's fantastic. Because in the end, we are social creatures, of course. That's what we work toward. Right, we work toward building the society and making it a little better for our kids. And you know what, it doesn't matter when I die because I'm gonna do my damnedest to make sure that it's the best for the next generation. It doesn't matter if I have children. What matters is that I've worked toward that purpose that I've created, and you know what, that's enough. But understand, better as opposed to what? You're describing a trajectory towards some ideal, towards some best, you don't have a best. And all the atheists can roll their eyes at this point. But the fact is that he's just said this is his own ascribed purpose, self-ascribed, self-determined purpose for his life. A couple of problems with this. Number one, determinism is still true, right? That's That happens to be, it's not like you really chose that purpose for yourself. Everything about the whole setup was determined. Uh, so secondly, the morality question that is somewhat related. So if someone decides that their purpose is going to be to become a serial killer, or something like that, can you really say that they shouldn't have that purpose? No, you can't. You can't say they shouldn't because that's the purpose they ascribe to themselves arbitrarily based on their own preferences. And if you say, if, if you want to uh, go, insist on some sort of moral realism in light of your naturalism still, even though that doesn't work, even if you try to insist upon that, 
the person who becomes the serial killer, just like you couldn't help to choose, you were determined to decide that your purpose is going to be to make the world a better place for the next generations. This serial killer was determined to have that as his purpose, which means that you can't even hold him morally blameworthy. This goes back to what I've been hammering and hammering on lately that I want everyone to get, which is if you accept naturalistic atheism, what that means is you have to live several illusions. You have to live the illusion of free will. You have to live as though there's a free will when you don't believe that there is. You have to live a contradiction every day of your life. You have to live with that illusion. You have to live with the illusion of morality. You have to pretend that there really are objective moral values and duties when on your view there simply cannot be. You have to live with this illusion um, of moral praise and blame which you can't get. So there are so many things, so many issues about which you just have to deny reality um, and live in contradiction. It just doesn't work. It makes absolutely no sense. Consciousness is another thing like that. You have to live as though uh, there is this real immaterial consciousness that you are a ghost in, machine, in the machine. But the fact is, you know, you have Daniel Dennett's sort of consciousness explained away sort of thing, right? So none of this works. You have to live a lie every day of your life. You have to live as though this is all an illusion. But somehow the Christian apologists are continually told that we're the dishonest ones. Now, I'm not saying you're consciously dishonest. I'm just saying that your view of the world requires you to live out an illusion on what you think is an illusion. It's very strange, very strange. Moving forward, this is a personal testimony. Um, understood, cool, uh, but that doesn't get us any closer to truth. And that's what this debate is about. Uh, essentially, uh, when given the opportunity, um, this was not a time to talk about the topic, this was a time to share a personal testimony. And uh, if that's, David, how you wanna spend your time, that's okay. Um, but I'm gonna keep going on about the debate topic. Well, you're going on about the debate topic in a sense. I mean, you're going, you're, you're broadly talking about things that you don't understand about Christianity, but that doesn't mean Christianity isn't rash is isn't rational. Um, really, I'm trying to do the atheists out there a favor when I say this. And if this sounds condescending, I'm sorry. If you want to show that Christianity is not rational, number one, you need to set up your own explanation of how you can have rationality at all. Because as I've said before, then you, you need to go home and figure out how on determinism you can have rationality because then you can have an understanding of how we can arrive at knowledge claims that are meaningful and a justification for that. And then at least you'll be able to say you know something. I don't mean that in, in an insulting way. I mean that in a very literal way. Okay. Um, secondly, once you've figured all that out, then you can assess Christianity by uh, challenging God's existence and the truth of the resurrection. Because if God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true right? Beyond that, if you want to talk about individual doctrines, yeah, as we've seen today, Christians differ on those things. Some of them are, I consider fundamentals. Like if you don't believe this, then you're in no wise really a Christian. But if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true. So that's where you need to aim all your guns. I think the reason that we see atheists getting away from that recently is because this is an impenetrable wall. There are incredible arguments for God's existence and incredible arguments, a credible case for the resurrection. Uh, there are a couple of things that you said um, that kind of got me. Um, you said uh, that uh, consciousness is just particles interacting in the brain. I don't know how that makes a lick of difference. Um, in fact, um, if you're following those particles interacting in the brain, uh, you would know that my brain doesn't produce several of those chemicals. 
right? It doesn't produce enough uh, serotonin, enough epinephrine, right? It doesn't produce enough of the feel-good chemicals, right? Oxytocin, and that I've got to work towards it. And you know what? That fundamentally changes my personality. It's part of who I am. And that's okay. So, is it just particles interacting? That's not a good argument. What that is is that's going, eh? It's, it, it's, it's, it's saying, I don't like it, therefore it's not true? It's not a good argument. How about the die for a lie? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said, I don't like it, therefore it's not true. But as far as I can tell, that's what we got all through the opening statements was, I don't like original sin, or I don't understand it. I don't like uh, the idea of the soul, or I don't understand it. I don't like the Trinity. You need to show that these things are impossible or something. Well, uh, you know, there are and as for the chemicals in your brain interacting, I, I'm not, okay, so I didn't listen to what David said there, so I'm not sure exactly what he's responding to, but my response would be your, your brain amounts to the guitar. Your brain amounts to the radio. Uh, that has nothing to say about your soul. So, yeah, you may have poor serotonin and dopamine levels or whatever or, or ones that are off. I do too, as a matter of fact, but that doesn't have anything to say about your soul, that has to do with the machinery of your physical body. We'd be in agreement there. The thing is, that doesn't say anything about whether or not the soul exists as the signal coming into the radio. Plenty of circumstances uh, that we've, well, plenty of occasions where we've seen cult leaders lead uh, entire groups into mass suicide. Oh, this is and, good. Uh, your example about uh, terrorists blowing up buildings, blowing themselves up is another huge issue. Were they right? Would that make Islam true? No, I think we should probably figure out a way that we can get from point A to point B and be able to determine the difference between them. We did, we, we did do that. <laughs> We did, did exactly that. This is an issue. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I'm getting a little snarky here. and I, Forgive me for that. Um, but I do want to be resolute about this. This Atheists have done this a lot lately. I, I, I actually overestimated when I got into um, Christian apologetics and doing this sort of thing on YouTube. I actually overestimated the uh, what, what people knew already in the field. I, I thought that you know, the debates and stuff have all been out there. The apologetics books have all been out there. The speakers have all been on the circuit for uh, a couple decades and more. I, I thought, okay, so the people that are interested in this in the online community are going to be aware of most of the at least surface level responses to what atheists say here. And as I dug in, there have been a few like that, and I've had really meaningful conversations, but the loudest and sometimes the angriest voices are completely unaware of how we answer some of the most basic questions. And this is not even just true about, I'm not picking on Eric Murphy. This is true about some of the bigger voices too, I found. And I've been completely shocked by this. Is there a clear difference between uh, the, the Muslim terrorists who flew the planes in the towers on September 11th and the uh, earliest disciples of, of, of Christianity? Yeah, let's hear actually what exactly it was that David said in this portion of his opening statements. Let's, let's see what he said. Second, I found out how Jesus' apostles died. Most of them went to their bloody deaths claiming that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. My explanation for the origin of Christianity had always been, ever since, ever since I went to church with my grandmother, my explanation for Christianity had always been the disciples got together, they, their guy died, they wanted to keep the movement going, so they make up a story. Um, then I found out how they died and if you're ready to die something, it seems like you really have to believe what you're dying for. When a terrorist blows himself up, 
he, he is obviously sincere in his belief. Uh, so the apostles had to believe what they were dying for, which means they really believed that they had seen the risen Jesus. Now, All right, now, did, did you notice the distinction? I want to know whether you noticed the distinction. The distinction is this. So Eric Murphy hears that, and he's like, right, right. You've supplied the defeater for your own claim, David. This is not what he said. This is my paraphrase. You, you sh talked about terrorists who blow themselves up. Does that mean Islam is true? No, it doesn't. The clear difference, he said, you ought to be able to point out some differences here. Yeah, there, there, are, there is at least one very clear difference, and it is, the, it is the point of the illustration, which is to say, when a Muslim terrorist blows himself up in an act of jihad or flies a plane into a tower, what he is demonstrating that he really believes what he's saying. I can't imagine a greater act of dedication than that, horrific as it is. However, the, the Muslim terrorists who, who do those things are not in a position to know for sure whether Islam is true. They believe it. They believe it intensely, but they're not in a position to know for sure whether it was true. The apostles, the earliest disciples of Jesus who died for the claims, uh, the claim to have seen the risen Christ, are dying for something that if it's a lie, they're the ones who made it up. They're the ones who claim to have seen the risen Christ. So, uh, as David says, maybe one of, maybe they were maybe one of them was confused. Maybe it was a hallucination. Maybe it was a delusion. All of them, all of them were hallucinating. All of them delusional. No. And uh, if you want to see the evidence, uh, the historical evidence for uh, the deaths of the apostles. You can check out Sean McDowell's uh, dissertation, which is available for free online. I just went through the, some of the data the other day at Purdue University. But the point about it is, you might say, well, yeah, but I, I don't buy Sean McDowell's case. Last time I mentioned it, someone wrote in on Twitter and said, well, I, I, I'm not convinced by what Sean McDowell said. Okay, but the point is he does give you all the early sources, which means 100% of the historical data is against you on this and, and seems to strongly indicate that at least three of the apostles very likely died martyrs' deaths, and all of them were willing to die martyrs' deaths. So um, the point is, there is a very clear difference here. The terrorists today in the 21st century who die for Islam don't know for sure whether Islam is true. Those who died for uh, claiming to have seen the risen Christ, they were in a position to, to know for sure whether or not it was true, or at least they were knowing whether their claim that they'd seen the risen Christ was true. There's a very clear difference here, and it just, it just missed it completely. And I want all the atheists out there, and certainly all the Christians should know this, notice this distinction because this is one of the great pieces of evidence for the resurrection case, and it is often just, just people miss it. Now, usually when people die for what they believe, it's for an ideology they got for someone else, from someone else. And that ideology could be true or false. They just happen to believe it. But the apostles were dying for something that they saw. Right. That's the point that we want to make. So um, is there anything else that we need to respond to here from Eric Murphy? We just didn't get that in the opening statement. Maybe we'll get that in the rebuttal. You did get it. You did get it. <laughs> um, th th there was a point where you said, is, if skepticism is applied to everything, would it crumble? I apply my skepticism every day to everything I do. Everything really? that I operate with is, is tentative, and that allows me to be open to understanding the world around me. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, we've had some amazing knowledge claims here today about evolution and how it works and the original atom and the existence of the soul. And uh, we've had some incredible knowledge claims where I don't see a lot of skepticism applied, and I don't think you're toiling uh, 
every day in a morass of skepticism, uncertain. No, I think you. I think you trust a lot of things that because people told you, and you just take it to be true. You sit in a chair. You assume it's not going to break because you've sat in chairs before. I, I don't. Be, I don't buy this. I apply skepticism to everything deal. And it's not because I don't appreciate Eric Murphy. I, I hear this a lot and I just, I just don't buy it. Now I, I know you're going to say, well, yeah, but we do, we do have actually a lot of good experience that when we sit down in chairs, they hold us and we hold things tentatively and all that thing, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. But if that's how you're going to define it, then you're not really applying skepticism to everything at all. You're, you're applying the same level of you're you're doing what everybody does, which is I've sat in chairs before. I assume this one's going to hold me. Uh, that guy's an expert in his field. Unless it sounds crazy, I'm going to assume that he's right. That's just what everyone does. That's not the kind of skepticism that I hear championed. Where um, I'm not going to I'm not going to believe anything unless it's demonstrated to be true and and all that sort of thing. Because this is all based on inductive reasoning from the past. If you you don't have certainty that that chair is going to hold you the next time you sit in it, so. Either you're going to have to affirm this skepticism and hold it and grit your teeth and say, yes, I'm going to be skeptical about everything in which you have to toil to get out of bed in the morning because you're not sure your feet are going to work, or you're describing something that is so mundane and trivial that it's what everybody does. I don't presume that I know the answer to something and close myself off to it. When I get that feeling in my gut, um, aporia, right? Yeah, I, I don't think this goes anywhere else. I think in a minute he references something to do with the design argument and how uh, theism, uh, general theism, doesn't help you here because what you're trying to get to is Christian theism. And this again, I mean, this is another thing. This is this is really like Christian apologetics 101 on this, or or you know, just logic 101 when it comes to the issues of Christianity, because. Okay, let me just go through it. I don't know where the book is, but there's a great book, Five Views on Christian Apologetics, lays out the five major apologetics methodologies. Um, you could also get Avery Dulles' book on the history of apologetics, and at the end of that book, he gives you the same five. Norman Geisler's Introduction to Christian Apologetics or Christian Apologetics, it gives you the five, calls them different names. But this is a known thing. You have classical apologetics, evidential apologetics, uh, cumulative case apologetics, presuppositional apologetics, and what is called reformed epistemology. Most of the kinds of people that you're used to dealing with are classical or evidential apologists. The difference between those two is classical apologists begin with showing that a God exists and then show that God raised Jesus from the dead, which is a microcosm. There was a microcosm of this in David's statements because he was talking about what convinced him and it was God's existence and the resurrection, right? Then you have guys like Mike Lycona, Gary Habermas, N.T. Wright. These are more evidential apologists in the sense that the difference between classical and evidential as it's talked about in the literature, is classical apologetics takes a two-step approach, God's existence and then the resurrection of Jesus. Evidential apologetics just goes with the resurrection of Jesus uh, because it feels like if you can get that, then you've got the whole ball of wax. But classical apologists show that there's a God first because if there's a God to raise Jesus from the dead, then this whole, then that, you know, that makes it more reasonable that Jesus was raised from the dead because at least there's a power capable of doing something like that. So I'm a classical apologist. So this idea that that doesn't get you Christianity, I hear people do this all the time. Now, I don't know that he did it in exactly this way, but typically what I hear is people saying, um, take the Kalam, for example, you've got this uh, spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise mind, and we're going to take this huge leap in logic to say that it's the Christian God. No, no one does that. Like literally zero apologists I've ever heard do that. 
They argue for a mere theism, the God of the philosophers, and then they follow that up with a resurrection case. So I think this debate is an interesting one um, because I think what we got from Eric Murphy is really, um, I think, a nice guy, a, 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 a kind guy in the debate, it seems like, or a, seems like a guy who wants to be reasonable, but he can't account for um, rationality at all as a determinist. Um, so I don't know how he's going to apply that to see whether or not Christianity is rational. Um, he he uh, dealt with issues that are not required for God to have existed and God to have raised Jesus from the dead. When in talking about those, the uh, original sin, existence of, or the nature of the Trinity and the existence of the soul, he seems completely unaware of the broad range of possibilities that classical Orthodox Christians hold on this that serve as defeaters to everything that he said. Uh, he obliquely referenced the arguments for God's existence, which is fine because David only obliquely referenced them. But his criticism of them is that they have no relevance to the truth of Christianity, which is merely false. And he flatly misunderstood uh, the difference between that David was drawing between modern terrorists and the deaths uh, martyrs for Islam and the deaths of the apostles who would have known the truth about this whole thing. So I think this serves as a good uh, cautionary tale to, I want to be friendly about this in kind, but I think this serves as a good cautionary tale to atheists that are going to debate Christians to kind of really read up on this. I'm not assuming that Eric hasn't read uh, up on this, but it really sounds like maybe we've got an echo chamber type thing going on. Now, I know he works on a show or he, or he does a show where he gets a lot of calls from from uh, Christians. But here's the thing. You you can't presume that the calls you get from Christians on the atheist experience or talk heathen are representative of the highest minds doing Christian philosophy out there and resurrection studies. There is a lot of literature. And I think what happens is a lot of people are having doubts or something, and then they hear something like the atheist experience or talk heathen, and they hear these Christian knock down what are not straw, mans, straw men, but what might as well be straw men because of how low they, the, the challenges are. So um, in the end, I, you know, I'm strengthened in my Christianity by hearing stuff like this. Uh, there, are, there are more challenging responses to Christianity out there. Um, uh, I, I think we can answer all of those as well, but uh, I, I would like to have the discussion at that level. So my, um, my recommendation would be to read journal articles, read books, uh, don't just spend the time on YouTube. Not saying Eric's done that, but I'm just saying that's what I encourage you to do, and Christians as well, because I don't want you to uh, be led astray or be confused by what are really trivial and mundane concerns that the history of the church has answered long, long ago, and we really should be past some of this. But I've enjoyed uh, this time with you, and I hope to see you again. So uh, if you'd like to, if you like to uh, contribute to what's going on here as we challenge uh, atheism online, then you can click in the top right-hand corner of the screen, or you can visit patreon.com slash trinityradio. And uh, let's see, I'd also encourage you, if you're interested in going further with this and maybe doing some studies, to visit us at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. You can go there at trinitysem.edu. If you'd like to learn casually, you can go to trinityradio.org um, or evangelisticapologetics.org or braxtonhunter.com. All those take you to the same place, but trinitysem.edu is the school. So I've uh, enjoyed this. Um, hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.